We are back here for a Wednesday night Bible teaching. And last week we had a special event for Kingdom Kids. So we had, we had a uh, recording on the podcast from last year. And so if you listen to the podcast, I meant to say something about this on Sunday, but I forgot. But I wanted it to be on the podcast so that people that listen to the podcast could understand what's going on. A few weeks back, we had a fill-in that was on Hebrews 10. And then we had the special event last week, so we didn't do a normal adult Bible teaching. So last week, it was a fill-in. It was a message that came right after the Hebrews 10 message. It was Hebrews 11 that we put on, and that was done in 2021. I can't remember the date on it, like November 28th or something like that. Uh, so we have another one that follows that, I believe, that will be going on there next week when we have Vacation Bible School next week. So there won't be this going on next Wednesday. So just so people just kind of fill in what you can, you can hear a difference when you listen to that Wednesday, which was pulled from before, you can just hear the difference in it. Um, and I like it. I like that. I like that you can tell it's from, it's from a different time. But uh, it's really good to listen to those again, and it's really nice to be able to get something that we did before the podcast days and pull it from last year and be able to plug it in from time to time. I really enjoy listening to previous sermons. And tonight, I am going to be in Psalm 12. So if you'd like to turn to Psalm 12, the 12th Psalm. And it's one that I didn't know there was controversy on it for many years up until, I don't know, it's, it's, been, it's been a while now, but... Um, I can, I can remember talking about it at the jail for the, for the jail Bible study many years ago. So I know I've been aware of this for a while, but I want to bring it up, go over it, and then share some things with you as to why I think this is important and get some clarification. I listened, here recently I've been talking a lot about the Word of God, and do you have the confidence that you have the preserved Word of God? I've been talking a lot about that. And depending on who listens to that, there's some people that are going to be offended by it. They're not going to like what I say. So, I, and they may have questions. So we need to have some way for people to send questions in, I guess. So... Come to church and ask me. We're at uh, 5310 Walthall in Lafayette. Lafayette, Virginia, up in Elliston. So come to the church and ask the question. Here's a couple verses for you I'm going to read before we get into uh, Psalm 12. This is Matthew 2435, Jesus speaking. Heaven and earth shall pass away, 
but my words shall not pass away. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23, 24, and 25 says, and I've read this just very recently on a Sunday, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Psalm 12. So, like I told y'all on Sunday, I, I'm, I'm reading, each day I'm reading in Proverbs. Today, read the sixth proverb. Good job. Good job. You didn't do it today? Ah, in the garden picking beans. Well, you don't have to double up or do it tonight. All right. Well, then I read today, I read this morning, I read uh, in the Psalms all through 12. So I read 1, 2, 3, all the way up to 12. I read all of those, and I was really wanting to get to 12 because that's what I wanted to teach on tonight. So Psalm 12 says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, it's hard to say, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. So <clears throat> this is David feeling like there was nobody around that honored God, believed in God, they, they had fallen away. You know, what we've been talking about recently that's what I feel like. I feel the same way right now in this country, in this church. I feel like, help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, has stopped. For the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, everyone with their neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. Notice, well, as we go through here, I want you to notice, speak, lips. You would speak with your mouth, lips. And, and notice that they have a double heart. They say one thing, but have no intention of actually doing what they said. They, they say whatever... They know other people want to hear, maybe to get elected, maybe just to get along, to be in the club, to get a promotion, whatever it might be, but they, in the end, it's flattering. They say what will make other people receive them. Flattery is something to watch out for. All right, three, in verse three, the Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Who have said, these, these people that have done this, those people have said, with our tongue will we prevail. This is about speaking 
or writing to be put on the internet. This is what I posted. This is what I think. And we're seeing a whole lot of that. Who have said, with our tongue will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? They're, they're all on their own. They're free to do whatever they want to do, to live however they want to live, and nobody can tell them different. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord, I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. It's usually just a bunch of hot air. They're speaking a bunch of lies. So the Lord has stood up. Or this, so David's saying this, and this is what he's saying, because David's a prophet as well. He says a lot of things. I mean, some amazing things that he said in the Psalms that came to pass hundreds of years later. You may not think of him as a prophet, but he... So, he, so this is what God is saying. The Lord is saying this. Notice that he said, Him... And from him, it's important that you see that. Him and him. Talking about the person that's doing the bad things and the person that needed to be protected from the bad things. Notice how the bad people who, it's all about what they're saying. What are they saying? They're saying words. Words. Now here's the cure. Here's what we have to look to. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Seven times. How many times should uh, Naaman dip in the Jordan? Seven times. How many, there's, a, there's, a, there's probably two or three other references in the Bible about seven times. But that one just popped into my head. But seven times. All right, thou shalt keep them, not him, but thou shalt keep them. O Lord, thou shalt preserve them, not him, from this generation forever. So when you see verse 6 and then verse 7, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I have always thought that that verse 7 is just talking about the words of the Lord because of other places in the Bible where it says, what I just read to you earlier, before when we first started, that uh, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away, and how his word is going to endure forever, and that just goes right along with it. But this is, in the Psalm 12, in Psalm 12, this is one of the best places where it talks about the pureness of God's word and that he is going to preserve it forever. Okay, but there's people who say, 
No, no, no. He's not talking about the words, God's words. He's talking about the people before. Well, if you go to, if you go to the Hebrew, which you don't have to do it because the Bible's got it right right here. Now, this is third person, I'm thinking, third person plural, compared to first person plural. In the other versions of the Bible, they were so adamant about the preservation of God's Word that it seems like they didn't want that to mean that here. So they had to figure out how to make it to where you would read it in a new translation, a new version, and not take it as this is preserving the Word of God, but it's just talking about preserving the people that were needing to be protected. So in the, uh, in the New American Standard, in, so, this, in this verse 7, it says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. It changed the second them to him, which changes the meaning of it. It's the person that he's talking about because he said him. The NIV of 1973, when it originally came out, it says, O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. So that, yeah, they change it to the people being protected, not the words of God, being preserved forever. In the NIV of 2011, because they've, the, there was the famous 1973 edition, and I think we have the 84 edition here. And then you have a 2011 and, mo, and many others, because they will be called out on something that was bad, and then they'll go in and they'll fix it a little bit, and then they put out a new, a new edition. It says, You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. In the New Living Translation, therefore, Lord, we know you will protect the oppressed, preserving them forever from this lying generation. The Christian Standard Bible says us and us, and then the uh, ESV says them and us, just like the first one did. No, the first one said him, but it, it says, but you get the picture. They change it from them. Now, in the Hebrew, it is... All right, here it is. All right. There is no greater light to be had by resorting to Hebrew. The simple fact is that the Hebrew of Psalm 12, verse 7, is third-person plural, they or them, not first-person plural, we or us. There isn't a Hebrew manuscript in existence that is first-person plural. Thus, every one of these modern translations have fabric fabricated a verse 7 that God never said. What that means is that if you are one of those people who like to discredit the King James Bible for what you consider mishandling of the original Greek or Hebrew text, then you must now, in fairness and honesty, 
also discredit these modern translations for producing a reading that is not a translation, but a total fabrication of what their opinion of the original text is. Now, is that interesting? I was, I was listening to, like I was telling somebody yesterday or whenever it was, I was talking about how I started listening to a little bit of YouTube. Uh, I've never really done that in the past. I have a phone now that's a little bit more up to date, and I could actually watch some things. I don't, I don't like YouTube. I don't like it at all, just because of what they stand for and what they've canceled. But there's some really good Bible things on there, and there's one that must be pretty popular that kept popping up on its own, and they had questions about different things that I've preached on. And I'm like, ooh, what, is, what did he say about this? Some of them you know, go pretty much in line with what I had preached, but then there was other ones where, and, and I like the guys, I like the way they talk and the way they go to Scripture, but what I have found out is on some of these tricky issues like pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, they don't know, and they argue the cases for each one. So that's fair, because, I mean, I'm pre-millennial. I, that's what I believe. And basically what that means is, if you don't know, the millennium is a thousand-year reign that the Bible talks about. Some people say, well, that's, uh, it's just, it's, uh, how do you say it? It's not literal. It's just something like a picture, a type, a symbol, that, that type of thing. They'll justify it like that. And they said, well, it's not really, and there's people who think that the millennium started when Jesus ascended, and then the church age started, and that's the millennium. And that would be a, I really don't, I can't keep it all straight, but I listened to them, and I was a little, little bit more confused than when I started, but it was, it was pretty cool listening to. But as I went down through, there was different people talking on different subjects, and uh very interesting. Well, I saw the one where this guy was talking about, is the King James Bible the most accurate? So I hit it. And I'm, I think I was walking through Walmart, listening to this in my ear, earbuds. And he starts off with how, and I could tell that he didn't think so by the way he was talking up the King James so good at the beginning. And I said, all right, here comes the butt. Here come, here, and there it came. Because he was saying beautiful language and his flows and his kids go to a Christian school where they're required to memorize in King James. And he said, I can't say the 23rd Psalm unless I do it in King James because it just don't sound right if I do it in any other version. But. And then he goes on to talk about the arguments people have that say the King James is the best and most accurate. And he says, they'll say this and they'll say that. And he had four, at least four things that he brought up. Every one of them was so weak. I mean weak. He, he was talking about, one of them was Old English. He's like, you know, you hand somebody King James Bible and, you know, what do you do but all these old English words? Uh, well, somebody will say, well, give them, a, give them an old dictionary as well. And he thought that was so ridiculous. And so they got to look up every fifth word they come to. I, I'm reading out of my King James Bible. I read through Proverbs, and 
It's not every fifth word. It might be one word in a chapter, if that, that you might have to look up. Like leasing, which is in, uh, I think that was, I was reading in Psalms. And it said leasing, which means falsehood. It's only in the King James Bible a couple times. But what was your word? Forward? Yeah, which is the opposite of toward. So forward, which is, uh, we just read that in, in Proverbs, right? Yeah, it's right in my brain because we do, we've been reading it. So you're proving, you're just checking me to see if I'm really reading Proverbs. So yeah, that's an excellent example. So that word forward is to go away from. You're, you're, you're turning away from God. You're going away from good ideas going to bad ideas. Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's one that you might have to look up. But isn't it cool to figure out what it means? And it could be translated this. You know what? If, if the King James Bible, if they only took a word like that and changed it to a modern word, and that's all they did, I wouldn't have an issue with it. If they took leasing and just took it out and put falsehood, but you go to all the other newer versions of the Bible and see what they put in place of it, they'll all be different. Not all different, but what I'm saying is, for the most part, they're going to be different. Why couldn't they come up with something new, a modern English word, that they could all agree on and plug it in? They can't all agree. Oh, and what they'll do is like pernicious. They'll take a word like pernicious and say that's old and we need to change it, but they'll take it out and then they'll put it somewhere else where a more modern word is. Like destructive ways and pernicious ways. And where it said destructive, they'll like, you know why they do that? They have to be a certain percentage different than another version to get a copyright on it. So they got to jumble words everywhere they can to get the proper amount of difference. Or they don't have a moneymaker. It's all about coming up with a new translation. And, you know, and something else you need to notice is they all compare themselves with the King James. Every last one of them. Why are you comparing yourself to the King James? If you think you had to come up with something better, why don't you... Well, compare it to one of the other newer versions. Why did you come up with the new one when that guy already did it? So every single time somebody comes out with a new one, they're basically saying, without coming out and saying it, that this one's better, more accurate, that guy didn't do it right. And more and more doubting and confusion amongst Christians. And many have said, I can't handle all this, I don't know if I'm reading what's right. I don't know if I'm being led astray. I'm just walking away from it. They're froward. In First uh, John chapter 5, now this is a new King James Bible right here. This is that Adrian Rogers Legacy Bible, and I love it for the little things that he puts in throughout. But it's got, even though it doesn't take out as much as the other versions of the Bible. It still has some mess-ups in it. Now, they get this part right. Now, this is 
1 John chapter 5, verse 7. 1 John chapter 5 is a wonderful part of Scripture. Before I turn there, uh, Psalm 12, I didn't read the last verse. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Now what I can say about that is when men are exalted... Wow, you came out with a brand new version of the Bible. Aren't you awesome? Men are exalted. Bad things could come of that. So 1 John chapter 5, I'm just going to I'm going to start reading at verse 1. And then I have a uh, uh, a little thing I'm going to read to you out of another book that I have here about a question about Erasmus. You know who Erasmus is? It's a person. Erasmus. I can't remember his first name. Desiderius. It's some weird first name. But, is, but he's known by Erasmus. And we're gonna, I'm going to read about him. And, it, and you're going to see where, why uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 is in our Bibles. You're going to see why it's there. Because any new translation you pick up, other than the New King James, is not going to have that verse in it. It might have the verse, but it's not the whole verse. They either take the verse before and split it to make a 7, or they split verse 8 to make a 7. But they leave out one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith, which is the Trinity. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Now, that doesn't mean that you're keeping the Ten Commandments. His commandments are His Word. It's just another way of saying His law, His precepts, His judgments, His commandments. When you get, um, if, if you would like to turn to Psalm 119, you, you, not, don't, you don't need to do it now, but turn, go to Psalm 119 sometime, and every single verse is going to say, is going to have in it, Law, precept, or what else? Word, uh, judgments, and all these different words for the Word of God. And you, you have to get all the way down to maybe 30-some verses before you, you get a verse that doesn't have it. And then the very next verse, for several in a row, we're going to have one of those words in it. Testimonies. Precepts, I mean, all, th- those types of words. So can't, commandments is one of them. And they're doubled up in some verses. I'm going to write them all down one day and count, because what is, how many verses is in 119? It's like 176, maybe? Verses in one psalm? And almost every single verse has a word that means the word in one form or another. And I bet you if you take the verses that have double, 
it would probably amount to the number of verses, but I don't know. That's, that's something interesting to do. So you keep his commandments. Now, if you are keeping the Ten Commandments, I hope you are, but you're not doing it because you're able. You're doing it because he's given you the ability to do it. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Why? Because you don't work for it. You get into his rest. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. We've been talking a lot about that. Who do ye say the Son of Man is? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. Now here's the verse that's either gone or this portion of it is gone. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. Alright, that's all I'm going to read right there. Because we're going to, I need to have time to read this other thing. So, 1 John 5, chapter, I mean, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, is the best scripture in our Bible that talks about the Trinity. And there's other places where you pick up on the Trinity. It's kind of hidden more, and it needs to be brought to you out of the pages, and then you may see it. I, I've pointed it out several times in sermons where you, you wouldn't notice it unless it's pointed out to you, possibly. And I've pointed it out in many places. But there, it just spells it right out for you. Now, in this little book here, and again, this, you, you've heard me talk about this guy before, uh, Dr. Samuel C. Gipp, G-I-P-P. He has a doctorate in theology, which he never brags about that. Because it's, it's, it's the people who are the most educated in seminaries and Bible colleges that seem to be the ones that mess everything up. So he has a question that was asked, and, it, and the question was, was Erasmus, the, which, who was the editor of the Textus Receptus, a good Roman Catholic? Was he a good Roman Catholic? And, that, and that's so-called good, you know, quotation marks around the good. Answer. Erasmus, who edited the Greek text, which was later to be known as the Textus Receptus, was an embarrassment to the Pope 
and a poor example of a so-called good Roman Catholic. Now, I've read about Erasmus many years ago, and I really liked the, the guy. I liked him a lot by what I read about him. He had a big-time desire for the common people to have the Word of God. And that was his life goal. Okay. Desiderius, I don't know how to say his first name, but Erasmus is his last name, was born in 1466 and died in 1536 at the age of 70. This was no mean feat during the, during the days when the plagues uh, and, and, and the medical practices that they used back in those days worked together to limit the average age of a man's life to approximately 35 to 40 years. Both of his parents fell victim to the same plague while Erasmus was just a lad. He and his brother were then placed in the care of an uncle who promptly sent them off to the monast monastery just to be rid of them. Thus, Erasmus's destiny was sealed long before he could ever have a say in the matter. Young Erasmus became, a well, -known, became well known for his charm, urbanity, I guess that's how you say that, and wit, and was in possession of an obviously above average intellect. He was later to choose to be an Augustian on the sole attribute that they were known to have the finest of libraries. No wonder I like this guy. His behavior was somewhat bizarre by Augustinian, whatever, uh, you know, you don't want to follow men, but a, that was uh, a sect. I'm trying to say that right because when I said it and I heard it on the recording, it sounded like I said sex but it's S-E-C-T, a sect, like a cult or a denomination, a sect. So that particular group, he, did, he, he, he was somewhat bizarre by their standards. He refused to keep vigils, never hesitated to eat meat on Fridays, and though ordained, chose never to function as a priest. The Roman church had captured his body, but quite apparently his mind and heart were still unfettered. He is known to history as one of the most prolific writers of all times. Erasmus was a constant and verbal opponent of the many excesses of his church. He berated the, the papacy, the priesthood, and the overindulgences of the monks. He stated that the monks would not touch money, but that they were not so scrupulous concerning wine and women. He constantly attacked cleric clerical concubinage and the cruelty with which the Roman Catholic Church dealt with so-called heretics. He is even credited with saving a man from the Inquisition. One of his many writings consisted of a tract entitled Against the Barbarians, which was directed against the overt wickedness of the Roman Catholic Church. 
he was a constant critic of Pope Julius and the papal monarchy. He often, often compared the uh, crusade leading Pope Julius to Julius Caesar. So he's comparing Pope Julius to Julius Caesar. When uh, there was a, a, some type of a drawing that was made of Pope Julius and, and he was portrayed as, ha- as going to hell, uh, it, it was it was written it was a, it was like a writing that he did. It, it, nobody it was anonymous, but when it came out, everybody knew it was him. It, they knew it was Erasmus, but they couldn't prove it. He was offered all right. So to, to, to try to get him in line, he was offered a a bishop type role in hopes that it would silence his criticism. He rejected the bribe flat out. Erasmus, all right, here's, here's the good part. Erasmus published five editions of the New Testament in Greek. They were brought out successively in 1516, 1519, 1522, 1527, and 1535. Erasmus desired to include the verse, but knew the conflict would, would rage if he did so without at least one Greek manuscript for authority. Following the, the publication of his second edition, which, like his first, consisted of both the Greek New Testament and his own Latin tra- translation, he said that he would include 1 John 5, 7 in his next edition if just one Greek manuscript could be found which contained it. Well, they found two. Now, the people who are against that being in your Bible, they will say those two were made up just to satisfy him so he would put it in. All right, the Roman Catholic Church criticized his works for his refusal to use Jerome's Latin translation, a translation that he said was inaccurate. Well, where did that one come from? Alexandria. He opposed Jerome's translation in two vital areas. He detected that the Greek text had been corrupted as early as the 4th century. He knew that Jerome's translation had been based solely on the Alexandrian manuscript, uh, the Vaticanus. I don't know if I'm saying all these words right. Written itself early in the 4th century. He also differed with Jerome on the translation of certain passages which were vital to the claimed authority of the Roman Catholic Church. So Jerome had rendered Matthew 4.17 do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the Roman Catholic Church said you have to do penance to us. And, And Jerome is the one that put it in Scripture. Uh, he translated it that way. But Erasmus put in, be penitent, be penitent, not do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Erasmus was also a staunch 
defender of both Mark 16, 9 through 21. And you may want to write this down. Mark 16, 9 through 21. In some new versions, those verses are not there at all. In other new versions, I mean, that's a lot of verses. Verses 9 through 21. In other newer versions, those verses have a note. Or it'll be in parentheses or brackets. And there'll be a note saying this wasn't in the such and such manuscripts. And, you know, there's a, there's a problem with it. And also, John 8, 1 through 12. Does anybody know what John 8, 1 through 12 is about? I didn't look this up, but I know it because I know this very thing. The woman caught in adultery. That is totally missing out of some newer versions of the Bible. Now that is a very critical part of Scripture. That shows Jesus not condemning the woman caught in the very act, and all of her accusers weren't able to throw a stone, and they all left. That is a very important part of Scripture. Well, you pay close attention in newer versions of the Bible, it either will not be there, or there'll be a note saying something about it that it's not, they're not sure if it should be there or not. So he, he stood up for those portions of Scripture, but yet all the modern-day scholars can't seem to stand up for those things. Possibly Erasmus's greatest gift to mankind was his attitude toward the common man in the rigidly classed society in which he lived he was a, just a big-time advocate of putting the Scripture in the hands of the common man. While, and I'm, you notice that I'm putting some of my own words in here because I can't read some of these fancy words this guy uses. Uh, putting the Scripture in the hands of the common man, while Jerome's Latin had been translated at the bidding of the Roman hierarchy, Erasmus tra- translated his Latin with the express purpose of putting it into the hands of of the common people of his day, a practice that the Roman Catholic Church knew could be dangerous to its plan to control the masses. Erasmus is quoted as saying, Do you think that the Scriptures are fit only for the perfumed? I venture to think that anyone who reads my translation at home will profit thereby. He boldly stated that he longed to see the Bible in the hands of the farmer, the tailor, the traveler, and the Turk. Now, what would that mean? What what religion back then, the Muslims, the Islam people, he wanted to see the Bible, they desperately needed to get the Bible in their hands. So the Turk, the Ottoman Empire, and the whole Dark Ages came about because of the Muslims. They, they blocked off the trade routes to Asia. So people couldn't get paper, ink, all the things that they went to. So we, they went through the Dark Ages because no one could write anything. They couldn't learn, they couldn't read, because the, the supplies just weren't there. And it was all because of the Muslims uh, stopping. And that was, that was in the 1400s. He was in the 1500s. Why do you think Columbus <laughs> sailed the ocean blue in 1492? He was looking for a way by water to get to Asia. He was trying to get to India. 
so he could get the things that they had been lacking for many, many years. And he ran upon an even better place. Later, to the astonishment of his upper-class colleagues, he added to that list, he added he wanted to see the Bible to get into the hands of the Masons, the prostitutes, and the pimps. So he added. Knowing, knowing his desire to see the Bible in the hands of God's common people, it seems not so surprising that God was to use his Greek text for the basis of the English Bible that was translated with the common man in mind, the King James Bible. That's what it originally led to. So, God was to use his Greek text, and that is what they used. The Texas, his Greek text ended up being the one that was used. All right, here, this is, I, I want to I keep reading. I know we're, we're about out of time, but we started a little bit late, so I think we'll be okay. But I want to read the rest of this. <clears throat> it has been said that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. Now, there is probably far more truth to the statement than can be casually discerned, for the reformers were armed with Erasmus' Bible, his writings, and his attitude of resistance to the Roman Catholic intimidation. So where did Luther get, every, where did he get to the point where he wanted to nail the 95 Thesis on the, on the door? They're saying that Erasmus had a whole lot to do with that by actually doing what he did against the Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> of Luther, he said, I favor Luther as much as I can, even if my cause is everywhere linked with his. Sounds like he was, that sounds weird, like he was admitting that he was right in line with Luther. He wrote several letters on Luther's behalf and wholeheartedly agreed with him that salvation was entirely by grace, not works. He refused pressure by the Roman Catholic superiors to denounce Luther as a heretic. He wouldn't do it. All right, as it is, only his disagreement with Luther's doctrine of predestination ever prompted him to criticize the reformer with pen and ink. That's about the only thing he... So he had a disagreement. So... That's why you, it's strange that he would be a, uh, an Augustinian or wherever they said it in here. Um, so that's where Luther and John Calvin came down from. But Erasmus didn't get into that predestination thing. He didn't agree with it. Well, the Presbyterian churches, a lot of Baptist churches today follow that, and they're all into predestination. And uh, that's part of the, being a five-point Calvinist. Some of them have, have turned a little bit. Like John MacArthur, he's a four-point Calvinist because he, I think, over time, the more he's read the Bible, the more he's understanding that, uh, you know, you would have to blame God for somebody being a sinner and going to hell because what they say is with predestination, you're either predestined to be saved or you're not. Um, so basically, if a person never believes, it's not their fault. But they're, they're always talking about how they can never make a decision for God because they're totally depraved. 
That's one of their five points. Is a, a person is totally depraved. He can't make a good decision. Well, that's just false. A person can make a good decision. It's what, they, what they're messing up is a person is totally depraved that he cannot do anything to earn his salvation. That's all, and they take it so far as to you, you would never make a decision for Jesus. The Holy Spirit's got to do that for you. So if you follow it all the way through, if a person doesn't receive Jesus, then it's God's fault because the per, because it's God's got to do it. So you'll never come to a conclusion. So my, the way I see it is, yeah, the Holy Spirit comes after you and shows you things. But He never forces you. God never forces you to make a decision for Him. And He never purposely keeps you away. You have a free will. You have to make that decision. So He, he disagreed with Luther in that point. So uh, basically, He was not a good Roman Catholic. Erasmus was not a good one, which is great which is great. Um, he he, he kind of, concerning the most biblical sect, sect of his time, the Anabaptist, he reserved a great deal of respect. He mentioned them as early as 1523, even though he himself was often called the only Anabaptist in the 16th century. He stated that the Anabaptists, that, that the Anabaptists that he was familiar with, the ones that he, were, he was familiar with, called themselves Baptists. And he says, ironically, Erasmus was also the first person to use the term fundamental. So I'm kind of picking up on the fact that this Samuel Gipp might be an independent fundamental Baptist. And in most independent fundamental Baptists use the King James Version that I've that I've know that I've heard of most or a lot of I don't, I don't know about most. So we see that when Erasmus died on July eleventh, fifteen thirty six, he had led a life that could hardly be construed to be an example of what could be considered a so called good Catholic. But perhaps the greatest compliment though veiled, that, er, that er, this, this is pretty good, that Erasmus's independent nature ever received came in 1559, 23 years after his death. That is when Pope Paul IV put Erasmus's writings on the index of books forbidden to be read by Roman Catholics. They were canceling people back then. Cancel culture. It ain't, it's nothing new. All right. Well, that's, uh, I hope you like that. And um, I, I'm just wanting to give some examples. I've got a whole lot more I can give you, but I, I don't want to make it all about that. I mean, I just want to, I want you to be confident that when you pick up the Word of God, that you have the Word of God and you're reading the Word of God, that it is the preserved Word of God. That, that, that guy that I was listening to on that uh, question and answer thing, he was talking about how 
he actually admitted to how many verses were missing out of the new translations. And he said, that's what King James people will, will point to. I'm like, yeah, I do it all the time. And he said, well, that's just, this, who's to say that they weren't added in before and that they're fixing it? So what he's saying is that either they've taken away or the King James had added two. Now, at the very end of the Bible, it talks about how it's, you're warned. If you add anything to this prophecy, now whether it's talking about just Revelation or the whole book, people will fight over. But if you add to the plagues that are talked about in this Bible will be added to you. And then it says, if you take anything out, it says your part will be taken out of the book of life. Your part. It doesn't say your name will be taken out. That's what I've always heard. I've, so if you are a good-hearted person, you believe on Jesus, and you use a new version, and you think it's okay to take that verse out, I don't know if it necessarily means, or if you're the person who put together that new version, I don't think it's saying that since you took Scripture away that you are doomed because once saved, always saved. Once, you ha once you're born again, you have eternal life. And you can't even mess that up, I don't think. Or it's not eternal life. So I think the Bible, the King James Bible, says it perfectly that if you take away anything out of the Word of God, that your part will be taken out of the book of life. So, is that so, you, so you're storing up treasures in heaven, right? You're trying to earn crowns. Some people are barely making it in. They have nothing to show for other than that they believe, but they did not store up any treasure in heaven. Well, at least they made it. So that might be what that means. So you can look at it for yourself. Of course, if you got a new version, it won't even say Book of Life. It'll probably say Tree of Life. Yeah. They are, they're not... Your people will say, well they're, all, well, they're the same thing. It just says it differently. It's the same thing. It's just, they just use newer words. It's the same thing. They just don't have the these and the thous and the yees and all that. It's the same thing. Well, if it's the same thing, why, do you, why are you worried about me reading out of the King James? If they're all the same thing, I'll just keep reading out of my King James. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for preserving it. And Father, we thank you for people like Erasmus that we can look back in history and see how he was not concerned about pleasing men, but he definitely wanted to please you. And Father, I pray that we would uh, look at that story and we would be inspired to want to be people who are pleasing to you, Father. That we may not live a comfortable perfect life here on this earth because we're standing up for what's right. Father, we may be canceled. We may be ridiculed, persecuted, but that just goes with serving you. And Father, we're not scared of that. And Father, it's, it's just our service. We expect it, and that's fine because we know what we get in the end. And Father, it's all because of you and what you did for us. And we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.